Hi, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, the king of co-op, Steve Kingsley, and his special guest are going to review a game for you and have a related discussion. And without further ado, here's Steve! Welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop. Steve here with a couple of special guests. We have David Thompson, designer of Buy Stealth and See. Hey, how you doing? We also have Joe, who met him recently at a convention to play the game. Hi, I'm Joe. I've been playtesting David Thompson games since before it was cool to playtest David Thompson games. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's still now, but... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in this episode, we're going to focus on the new game by Stealth and C. But before we get into that, we'll have a quick Patreon announcement. This week, I'd like to thank... Howard Lee, a co-op fan, Yashir Baseri, a co-op lover, and Aaron Juniak, also a co-op lover. With that out of the way, let's talk about how we got into gaming a little bit. So, David, how did you get into gaming? Oh, yeah, sure. So, uh, ooh, this is going to sound like a very generic origin story, like everybody else is either Magic or Dungeons & Dragons. So, in my case, it was it was D&D. I grew up playing uh, Dungeons & Dragons. Probably started when I was like 12 or so. Uh, played up until about early college. Um, and then dropped out of gaming for a long time. Was looking to get back into it. And started looking back at role playing. And then discovered the world of hobby board games. And actually it was Joe and a, a mutual friend of ours, Matt, who I met. And they already had a gaming group. They introduced me to... Uh, the world of, like I said, designer or hobby, hobby board games. So that was back in the late, I guess, 2000s. Um, yeah, and so ever since, maybe, or maybe I guess the 2010s, right? Uh, and that's ever since then, I've kind of gone on this journey of trying to decide if I like thematic games or Euro games or war games. But um, yeah, I've been all in since then. That's cool. So do you have any gravitations towards like competitive versus co-op or are you just kind of all over the board? Uh, no, I, I, as far as like competitive solo co-op, I'm, I'm sort of an omni gamer in that regard, but though my favorite genre in general is definitely like Euro, th um, mechanisms with a historical theme. Very cool. So what about you, Joe? How'd you get into gaming? Well, I read an article in Wired Magazine probably 10 years ago about Settlers of Catan. Uh, and I enjoyed that for a hot minute and then discovered a whole other world of games. Uh, I met David and uh, been at it ever since. Yeah, I think a lot of people get into the gaming world from Catan to, I mean, throw me in that boat as well. I mean, I played Magic the Gathering and dabbled a little bit in D&D, but it was Catan and Robo Rally. And so after oh, yeah. that, I was like, oh, wait, there's all these other games out there? <laughs> so Richard Garfield's other you know, gateway game, right? Besides magic. That's right. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, I thought it was, uh, he wanted to raise money for Robo Rally. And so he made another game to help with the funds, which was magic the gathering. Right? <laughs> it worked. <laughs> I, I think he worked. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Okay. So let's talk about by stealth and C. So David, what type of game is by stealth and C? Yeah, so uh, originally conceived as a uh, solitaire 
war game, right? But super light as far as war games go. So it's not this, you know, grognard sort of, you know, day long affair, right? It's more of a shorter uh, sort of combination thematic war game, I guess, if you will. Um, but yeah, originally designed as solitaire, though it has a, a co-op option where you're basically just using the same rules but playing cooperatively with up to three people. Yeah, I think that's an interesting distinction because a lot of times when we're talking war games, I feel like a lot of people think of these big, heavy I don't know, rule books with all these charts look up and chit- chits everywhere. And I, I don't think that qualifies necessarily with by Stealth and Sea. It seems like a much more approachable fare. Yeah, both. I mean, so when I'm designing a game, I have to play it like 4,000 times, obviously, right? And I'm not going to play a game that takes multiple hours myself to design it. So I basically keep them like I like them, which is, you know, relatively short and try to just be pack a lot into a, a small period of time. So the gameplay, it's for an individual mission or individual session, it's like 30, 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes max. Yeah, that's really short. That's awesome. So how does the game play? Like, what's the turn structure and what type of actions can players do? Yeah, sure. So uh, for, I think we should, you know, kind of start off with, you know, what what is the game about, right? Because that kind of helps set the stage. And so this is, uh, it's a World War II game. And the name by Stealth and Sea, it's referring back to the fact that the player or players are uh, these Italian frogmen who are piloting human torpedoes, right? So we could probably dive into that more later on if you want, sort of the, the history or the background. But in the in the game, you're going to play individual missions. That's a session, like I said. And so you will be piloting these torpedoes with guys riding it, um, trying to attack the Royal Navy in a few different ports. And so an individual mission plays over 12 turns, if you, if you make it through the whole thing, which is not easy. Um, with each of the three different human torpedoes, right? So each has two operators, but you're basically, it revolves around each of the torpedoes, uh, taking a couple of actions a turn. So, you know, over the course of the game, you're going to play 12 turns and each one does a, a one or two actions per turn. And that's why it plays so quickly. Yeah. I found that kind of fascinating, this human torpedo concept. I don't know how familiar people are about that, but maybe we can dive into it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, just, uh, you know, I could go on for hours, right? So you'll just have to reel me in if I get too carried away. But um, essentially, as World War One was ending, the Italians was were flirting with this idea that they would take torpedoes and they would have guys actually physically ride them so that they could be guided up to a target ship. Um, you could either be skimming the surface, uh, in which case you could see the target more easily and pilot, etc. Or you could actually submerge and that you would do that, you know, when you thought you might be seen. So you would pilot the torpedo to the target, uh, detach the front of the torpedo, which was the warhead, uh, attach it to the target ship. And then you would set a fuse and, you know, delay fuse and give the operators time to swim away. Uh, and then a couple hours later, if everything went according to plan, the, the target ship would get, you know, attacked. And depending on the size of the ship, it would either get completely destroyed or it would sink and have to be uh, repaired. So they, they had conceived this idea at the end of World War One, but didn't have time to implement it. And so when World War Two came around, um, it was a really, a very low cost uh, investment right on their part. You're just training a handful of guys, uh, really cheap equipment uh, with a huge return if you were successful. 
So what made you interested in this part of history? Yeah, I like uh, I like World War II. That's, you know, besides maybe the French and Indian War, probably those are probably my two favorite conflicts. And um, World War II is somewhat unique in that there's just ridiculous amounts of historical data available at the extreme, you know, personal level, uh, which I love. Like, I love the research part of it. Uh, but I don't work on any war games that are like modern times. I, it's just kind of too close to home. So what World War II winds up being the sort of sweet spot where it lets me dig into uh, a relatively obscure topic like this and design a game around it. A lot of David's games have these esoteric stories that are really captured well in the game, but I'm always like surprised at where they've come from. So I'm curious, you know, how do you find these? Are you just like digging through libraries and books and things like that or? Yeah, usually I'll be I'll be reading something or maybe I'll see a, you know, a, a TV show or whatever, but usually I'm reading some weird something about World War II and I'm like, "Oh, that should be a game," right? And so that's that's how like Pavlov's house or Castlet or, you know, some of the other super obscure ones, uh, they all come from this, you know, maybe like one paragraph in a larger book or something. And then you just start this crazy research process. And every once in a while, you'll say, oh, that's a great game. And you start to research and like, eh, actually, that doesn't sound like a great game. <laughs> so they're not all hits, right? So what was the jumping off point for you for this game? Well, like, What story made you dive into this uh, thought of these frogmen riding these torpedoes? Yeah, so I was actually approached, uh, I guess it was like 2017, 16 or 17, by somebody who, who had asked me about he. You know, without going into a lot of gory details, he kind of commissioned me to design a game, and it wound up not working out um, about this topic, which is how I originally learned about it. So, when this game was originally conceived, uh, it was only going to be one specific mission. It was one of the missions where they attacked Gibraltar, and you know, we should say that I kind of mentioned this earlier, but this is a campaign game. So, over the course of the campaign, you're actually taking on nine missions. They're all historic missions, historically accurate missions. Uh, and they take place in Gibraltar, Algiers, and Alexandria. So all three ports are, are represented in the game. But uh, one of the missions, the really the, the sort of first successful mission these guys uh, had was in Gibraltar. And so the original version of this game was just that one mission. And I shared it. Uh, I was just sort of discovering the War Game, Solitaire War Game Facebook page which has about 8,000 super, super, super active people, right? So always willing to, to test your games and stuff. And I shared that mission there. But that's that's researching that one first mission was how I got into it. And like I said, originally it was going to be uh, a, a, a small commission. So you can kind of think of it as like a, a magazine, you know, size game, if you're familiar with that that term or, or concept. Yep. Yep. So that that's what started, and then and then I met. I actually met because this is this is a co-design, right? So my co-design partner is Nicola uh, Sagini. So he's a, a guy. He's an Italian guy who was super interested in the same topic. Had done a ton of historic research and reached out to me to playtest it, but also to propose the idea that we collaborate. And you know, his his actual game design wasn't far along at all, but he had compiled tons of historic research. So there are elements of the game, like the, the game has this, has this tech tree. And all of that was inspired by his work and then sort of reverse engineered into the, the core game. That's really cool. Yeah, it's been awesome working with him. I mean, obviously he's, you know, 
he has access to tons of literature that is in Italian, right? Because I'm, I'm limited, obviously, just to English because I'm a, I'm a typical American who can only read one language. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he, you know, he's got tons of access to things. He, he actually has been traveling to the uh, Italian Navy's museum doing research for us. So, you know, we'll get stuck on like, hey, what was this? You know, what were the ships in port on this specific day? So we can build an accurate map around it. And he'll, he'll just go and go to the museum and dig out through do the archives and, and get us the original documents. Wow. That's an awesome resource to have. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> yep. no, it's been great. It's been great working with him for sure. Yeah. I feel like this game is uh, like a history lesson, but not in a bad way. You know, like you're exploring this story that I think most people have never heard of. I certainly had never heard of it, uh, but you get to experience it in a really cool way. And um, you know, it comes through in the game just as as theme so it's very fun for sure yeah i i'm not a history buff by any means but i definitely enjoy history i love the stories that come out of his history there's some fascinating things especially world war ii because you have a lot of personal notes and details that you just don't get from other eras but i must admit when i heard about this game and these these frogmen these uh, uh, commandos are riding these torpedoes i that's something I was never really aware of until I heard about the game. It made me do some research. It was pretty fascinating to read about. Yeah, they, you know, not to overstate it, but these guys really were uh, super influential in all Navy special forces that followed. Uh, so when people think about Italy during World War II, you know, it's it's got a bad sort of stereotype and, and they're dismissed. But these guys certainly were, uh, I mean, really the forebears of this concept. Uh, they were immediately copied, right? So, you know, after they were extremely successful in their attack on one of their attacks on Alexandria, they they essentially destroyed two British battleships, right? So they knocked out, you know, two of the best ships in the entire Mediterranean Sea. The British immediately copied them, right? So the British started using the same thing. The Japanese did too. And of course, the Japanese were, were suicide human torpedoes. Not They couldn't just be human torpedoes. They were Japanese, so they had to take it to the next level. But um, but yeah, I mean, we we still our militaries today still have human torpedoes that are inspired by these guys. That's really cool. So, what uh, stories or interesting learnings that really jumped out at you when you were doing this research? Yeah, I mean, well, so first of all, just like you guys, I you know when I before I started this, I had no idea, right? So, just in general, the whole thing is sort of amazing. Um, like I just said, you know, I I didn't know really that if you if you go back to 1942 that you know the british had lost a couple of battleships in the mediterranean they were down to really just a couple and those were knocked out and it was so embarrassing to them when the when the these human torpedo operators destroyed those battle or you know essentially knocked the battleships out of commission uh they had the, the british covered it up right because they were embarrassed by it they were worried about what would happen if, if news got out so um and then just all of the the super minor details about these these guys right the operators so sort of amazingly we were able to find pictures of every one of the operators except two right so in the game you you are using the actual operators who piloted these things and it's the actual two two man teams um so just reading about each of these guys stories and then so that's that's amazing and then you get to sort of the sad part where like things were getting really bad and they had new recruits all new recruits in a mission and literally none of them made it through the mission. Right. So they were all captured in, in their first mission. So some guys who, who wind up becoming, um, doing these ridiculous sort of acts of, uh, just 
amazing stamina or whatever all the way to the other end of the spectrum where guys had one mission and that's all they ever did. Wow. That's crazy to hear. So uh, taking the historicals part of it and trying to apply that to a board game, uh, what are some of the design goals that you want to make sure you, you capture it appropriately to reflect history? Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, so it's, it's all, it's easy for me to say, right. But it was probably good to get Joe's opinion because Joe's, Joe's uh, played a couple of my sort of you know, solitaire war game. So I, my goal obviously is try to, uh, I wouldn't say re-simulate history, more like uh, evoke, right? What, what, it's happening in the story, but not at the expense of gameplay. So that's always like, that's the Holy grail of the design, right? You want it to evoke the history, but, but not be a crappy game experience. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of these war games that you might compare to this game. Uh, yeah. They feel like simulations. They can be really dry, but that is definitely not what this is. In fact, like you can, you can see like the elements we, we talked about how we, uh, got started in board gaming and you can see the elements of those different kinds of games kind of coming through even though it still is very much a historical context war game yeah for sure I, one of the elements that jumped out at me was the action selection of this game and what it is and correct me if I'm wrong here but basically you can choose to do two act, different actions on your turn but you have to roll some checks to see if you're successful but if you choose to do one you are immediately successful it reminds me a lot of uh, Robson Crusoe in that regard it, it, it absolutely should because guess what it was 100 percent stolen from robinson Crusoe. So, <laughs> <Nice. laughs> that was very very astute of you so uh robinson crusoe is a game that that joe i played with joe and our friend matt before uh, while i still lived in alabama near them and uh that game does two i mean it's an it's an absolutely amazing game we actually just recently played it at a convention we were all at so that was awesome and it's one of the only games that was on my must-play list, uh, and I haven't played it in years. But two mechanisms in that game I think are absolutely brilliant, right? One is that action selection mechanism, and the other is the uh, you know the card gets mixed into the other deck, so you know your your doom is coming mechanism. Um, and both of those are things that I've always wanted to essentially just straight steal and implement in a game. And this was the perfect uh, the perfect design to steal that action selection part of it yeah it, it creates this great balance of randomness and also determinism and you get to choose right it's not like oh the dice hate me like if you really need this act like this thing you're trying to execute to happen then don't roll the dice you know take those two actions and and do it so you can play the game as a very like risky push your luck kind of thing or you can just be like nope these are the things i'm going to do and i'm going to do them and they're going to happen uh, so it, it creates a great balance. Yeah. And I, and I think one thing that's worth mentioning is, you know, this, this is a, again, you know, I mentioned it before, it's a campaign game. And so what happens is if your operators make it through the mission, which is definitely not a foregone conclusion, right? It's a good chance they'll be captured or even potentially killed. But if they make it through it, uh, there's a couple of different things you can do during the course of the mission that if you're successful, you're going to advance their skills. And as those skills grow, obviously you're, you know, there's the system where this is generally speaking, right? You have a check. Let's say I need to, you know, whatever, change direction while I'm underwater. And that's a pilot check. And so I, it has a difficulty associated with that check. And you're going to need to make that on uh, a dice roll. And the number of dice you roll are determined by your skill. And you can improve your skill over time. So 
what winds up happening is if you're a rookie guy, you know, you're brand new and you really want to, this is a really important check you need to make. You're probably going to want to spend both of your actions, like Joe was saying. But over the course of the campaign, as your guys get better and better, you're much more likely to be able to make some of those bordering on like sort of heroic missions where you you are so skilled that you can push your luck more with the dice roll. So what happens to these uh, these crewmen as you level them up and maybe they don't make it through a mission? Are they eliminated and you have to choose a new crewman for the next part of the campaign? Yeah, that's right. So there's there's um, 24 total what we call operator cards, right? So two guy, you know, pairs of guys. Uh, so you have over the campaign, you have these 24 pairs available to you, which means unless you do really, really, really bad, you'll be able to make it through the campaign, right? You won't, you won't be able to, you won't be um, stopped from making it through it. But yeah, if they get captured or, or killed, like I said, you lose them and that means you lose their skills. And so if you've, you know, been successful with a couple of guys and they've, they've made it through three or four missions and you've leveled them up and they've gotten really experienced, just like in real life, you know, you had the, some of the most experienced guys uh, run into to bad luck or whatever, get captured and uh, you lose them. So there, there's, there's sort of this meta, and this was an in, sort of an intentional part of the design where uh, in the first mission, you know, you don't care. Like I'll go for the big ship and try to get a bunch of victory points and advance my technology. We could talk about that's a whole different thing. Um, so I'm going for the big score. But, you know, mission two, three, four, and you're playing with experienced guys and you say, you know, if I just abort this mission right now, these guys are going to make it through. Uh, I'll have them next time. Or you can push your luck and, and press on and risk getting captured. But if you do, you're going to lose the guy. So this is meta sort of plot that's going on behind the scenes over the course of the campaign. That sounds awesome. Uh, Joe, did you get a chance to experience this campaign? And what, if so, what was your favorite part of it? No, we only played uh, one round or, or one, you know, playthrough of the game. Um, but you definitely still get that feeling of, you know, this, there's consequences to what you're doing. So even if, even with just that one play, you're you're thinking about, well, there's like an actual real face on this card. Like, I don't want this person to die. So that's, that's very, that's very exciting. So David, did you find with your playtest that people were getting attached to their uh, their characters by chance? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it happens, you know, it happens in, in all of these historical war games. Like if I'm, if I'm basing it on the, the actual historical event, if it's something like that, I'll always do everything I can to get the actual, you know, picture of these people so that it's just like Joe, right? You want, you want the player to become attached to him. And so, yeah, you have two, two elements. One is these are actual people. And so I don't really want them to die. And then there's the, the campaign part where you, mechanically or, or whatever don't want them to die and so for sure you know both of those are definitely tension points for players throughout just the individual missions and then also the campaign so i'm assuming you saw people making suboptimal moves then yeah for sure for sure you know you'll 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 sacrifice you know today for tomorrow for sure <laughs> right that, right that a lot. <laughs> yep. well even within the sure. one game you can make these trade-offs where it's like well these guys could sort of draw the attention right or i could focus on my one team of guys that's gonna uh you know sink a ship and that, that's gonna be where the points are and then these other guys well they're not doing so hot uh you know i'm not gonna worry about them as much so there, there's all sorts of interesting decisions you can make so what were some of the challenges you faced with creating stealth and sea compared to the other tiles you've designed 
let's see. I would say one challenge I've had has been trying to get to some of the historical details. So, you know, I'm when I do these games, one of the, the last things I work on is what I call the companion book. And it's this book that there's no gameplay involved at all, right? It's just a companion book that goes with it. It's all historical detail and designer notes. In some of these missions, there are these super important missions and tons and tons have been written about them. And in some of the missions, they're almost like an aside and there's very little uh, historical detail. But you try to treat them all equally when you're designing them. And so, uh, you know, today, just this morning, as I'm writing this companion book, I'm trying to place which team of guys were actually responsible for the, the sinking of which ship. And that's a really, really hard thing to find. It's just a almost irrelevant merchant ship, right? Like I know the name of the three ships that were destroyed and I know the, the three crews, but I don't know which is responsible for what ship. And so gotcha. those types of, yeah, like super uh, detailed historical tidbits are, are challenging. And then, so that's like the historical research side. Now, on the design side, um, Joe already hit the nail on the head when he talked about the the um, trying to control the amount of variance or randomness you want players to experience, like letting them have control over it with the action selection thing. The other uh, element of the game that I wanted to control the variance in was the alert deck. So it's this this deck of of 36 cards that have the same distribution as a 2d6 dice roll, right? So they they range in value from 2 to 12, and there's 1, 2, and 1, 12, but there's 6, 7s, etc., right? So it's that, that range of a 2d6 roll. And you, I purposely use that instead of uh, just rolling 2d6 because I didn't. I wanted the game to have uh, variance in what you encountered, but I didn't want it to be wildly different from game to game, if that makes sense. And so coming up with that solution, that, that deck was a key for sure in the design, right? I think people will experience that. And I think, I think it'll be well-received. Yeah, that's such a cool mechanic. And it even gives you, as a player, a choice of how you want to play the game. So like we actually played the game with my son who just sort of took the deck in stride. Like he knew that sevens were going to be more common and that was it, right? But me and the other person that we played with are much more gamey. So we were kind of counting cards. So we kind of knew what we'd seen and oh well we'd already seen those uh high numbers so maybe we'll be a little bit more risky on on this uh go around uh so even within the like controlled probability you get you know a little bit more choice in 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 how much you want to game it yeah and then the, the last thing i would add to that is i wanted the game to have this um sense of sort of organic escalation uh right and so the, the in that deck of cards the 12 has a special feature where when you draw the 12, obviously it's a bad thing that's going to happen. But in addition to that, you go through all the discards and you remove the lowest number and then you reshuffle the deck. And so what that means is every time you reshuffle, you're losing low cards, which is really, really bad for you. And so it simulates the uh, defenders becoming, you know, increasingly alert to the to the attack. It creates a ton of tension, too. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Be able to control the using, you know, the die roll, the sample size of that. So as the game goes on, you know it's going to get worse and worse for you. Definitely pushes the players forward in a quicker fashion for a stealth game. Yeah, right. Exactly. And you know, I, I'm I'm really happy with it. I'll 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 be interested to see what the response is to it. Um, and that'll kind of dictate whether or not I use it or maybe some variant of it in the future. But so far, I've been really happy with it. 
So we've talked a lot about little bits and pieces of the elements of the game, but I don't think we really um, got into kind of how the game plays much. We talked about how each team has two actions they can do on the turn, mm -hmm. but what are some of these actions you can do? Yeah, so actually, you know, if you don't mind, what we'll do is, I should have done this earlier when you asked. I'll, I'll just go through what a sample turn looks like, right? And then that gives people an idea of, of how the game plays, if that's okay. And then I'll talk about some of the actions. Maybe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so at the beginning of the game, the very first thing you'll do is you'll set up the, the game based on one of two things. Either you, you can do a one-off, you know, historical setup. So you say, okay, I'm going to play Mission 7. And the game has all of the setup elements that... The, you know, what's historically accurate. So you're going to play with the correct technology level, the correct operators, and the correct defenses. The other alternative would be to play through, you know, a campaign. And then all of those things are going to be based around how well you've done. And so I think we should definitely talk later on about how the game, the defenses in the game are uh, responsive to the player's success or lack thereof, right? So, so you'll set up the game. Um, then you have what's called forward positioning, right? And so what that means is over the course of the, the different missions, the Italians had some significant advancements in where they were forward positioning their operators. So originally they would, the, the guys and the, the human torpedoes would be trucked all across the Mediterranean. By the time they got to the target, they were exhausted. You know, they were fatigued. Um, the human torpedoes were being carried around and would, would encounter faults and stuff like that. So Early on in the campaign, you're going to deal with ex exhausted operators. And you're going to deal with you know, these human torpedoes that have all sorts of technical faults. Uh, and then over the course of it, you'll improve that so you won't have to deal with those things. That's a huge impact at the very beginning of the mission. Then you'll have this, what's called a, a fault check. So you're going, to, you're going to see if any of the human torpedoes have a technical fault that you'll have to overcome. And that could do anything from affecting the ballast tank in the torpedo, which means that you can't submerge, which is really, really bad. Uh, or maybe you'll just have a warhead fault and you have to repair it or whatever. So a wide range of, of technical faults you'll have to overcome. Uh, so once you've done that, you'll have, like I mentioned before, you'll have a round of actions where each of the human torpedoes will get a couple of action points and we'll come back and talk about what those actions are. And then after that, you'll go through the defenses. Now, depending on where you are in the, in the campaign, uh, or the historical missions, the defenses can range widely from, you know, fairly not that significant to really, 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 really hard. And again, this was historically based, right? So early on, the British had no idea uh, that you're going to have human torpedoes attacking, so they weren't super well postured to defend it. And by the end of it, the, it they were so, the defenses were so uh, strong that the Italians basically stopped even trying to get inside the inner harbor to attack naval ships. They were just willing to just attack merchant ships that were not well well guarded and so those defenses are you know what's responding to the player you know seeking the player out trying to attack the player uh detecting it and then all sorts of of things like anti-torpedo nets that block you from entering the harbor and things like that uh, so that's an, that that would be a sample round and then you would just repeat that you know 12 times over the course of the the mission um so to, to defeat those defenses, right, you're going to be using all sorts of actions. Um, the most straightforward ones, obviously, are you're going to be able to pilot your, your torpedo to it, right? So just moving it itself is, is an action. Changing direction. So there's certain things like, you know, it's, it is based on a hex board. And so you will be able to make decisions that are, you know, high-level decisions. Do I want to be on the surface or do I want to be submerged? 
those have a lot of implications, that decision. If you're submerged, you can't see the huge city of Gibraltar, right? That's this beacon of light. You won't be able to see it, so you're going to have to make rolls to, to orient yourself. Whereas if you're surfaced, you don't have to do that. You can just orient yourself with no problem, uh, but you're much, much easier to spot. So changing direction, piloting the torpedo. I already talked about the fact that you can have these technical faults, so that your ability to repair the torpedo is hugely important. And then to the, what, what I call in the game are ops uh, skills, right? So things like evading the, human tor or the, the torpedo nets that are blocking off the inner harbor from your approach, or the actual act of detaching the warhead and attaching it to your target ship. All of those things are, are part of the ops skills. I guess the last thing you know we should we should talk about too is you know what happens after you've you've attached your warhead successfully, or maybe you've been attacked and you need to escape. And so there's this bit of the game where you want to scuttle your your human torpedo, you want to destroy it. And the reason for that is it was hugely important for the Italians to not let the British find the human torpedoes. They didn't want them to discover the technology they were using. And then the last thing you'll do is try to safely swim back to, to shore. And so that's easy in Gibraltar because this, your, the Spanish shore was close by and you had neutral Spain. Much, much more difficult in Algiers or Alexandria. That's a great description. Thanks for that. Yeah, sure. Some parts of that are infuriating, preparing this <laughs> torpedo that you're riding through the ocean. Uh, I mean, like, and you get, but you can also just picture in real life, these guys trying to like, oh, our battery's dead or like, we have to fix this motor and drive this torpedo through the water. But it, it's just, it's just crazy to think about. But the, uh, yeah, the also like trying to escape as you're swimming away, you know, like, it's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to look at some of these pictures of these torpedoes, and it's they're basically like just sitting inside this empty shell, and you know, exposed to the elements underneath the water, right? Well, then scuba suits, right, or, or whatever, rebreathers. But yeah, it's just I can't imagine what that would be like underneath the water, having a fault like that, and having to deal with it in the darkness. Because these were all uh, actually, actually another thing, good point to bring up. Were basically all these missions completed at at in the dark and midnight yeah so they would they would usually start them at um about 11 o'clock or midnight if they could if you know if at all possible sometimes they'd have to start later if, if they had problems but um they needed to start no later than about or no earlier than about 11 and they needed to finish by about four in the morning if they were going to have a chance to to escape um and they would do it at optimal lunar illumination right but sure uh, but yeah absolutely it's it, in the middle of the night is the is the time to attack yeah, that's crazy. So we talked a lot about the the game how it plays with individual missions, but I get the impression that this game is probably the best in the campaign mode. Would is that the mode you'd suggest to play? Yeah, absolutely. So I will say, and you know, Joe Joe kind of mentioned it, like the frustration level. I, I will say if there's one thing I'm concerned about this game is uh, in the rule book, I present the first mission, and then there's this whole separate, you know, book that just is all the nine missions. Um sure. My only real concern is that, you know, the first play for many players defines a game. Many players will yeah. never come back. And so I've made this decision to make the first scenario the one that's in the rule book. The concern I have about that is, uh, you know, that first scenario was their first mission and they were basically writing pieces, they were prototype pieces of junk. And so uh, how 
how I articulate to the players, don't be discouraged if it's super, super frustrating in your first mission because you're going to be dealing with the torpedo as much as you'll be dealing with the enemy. Uh, that's going to be a challenge, right? And so the alternative is, you know, have in the rule book a different mission, not the not the, the starter mission. And that's still something I've, I've debated myself. Our first game was like less than 30 minutes though. So I can't imagine that it would be so bad that, you know, it's not like an hour and a half to our game where you're just like, oh, this is terrible. I'm repairing this torpedo for two hours. You know, you, you get over it and you move on. Yeah. We also, in the in the run that we had, we instead of playing solo, we had one one player each for the different uh, torpedoes. And they were, you know, three of them. So we had one one person who basically broke a lot and had a bad game. <laughs> but then another person made it into the inner harbor and I think just because it was so quick and each turn was so quick and the whole game was so quick, um, it didn't, it felt like it didn't matter too much. Um, you got to enjoy the whole experience, whether you were breaking down constantly or making your way to the inner harbor. Yeah, with only a 30 minute game, too, almost makes me wonder that maybe people play games back to back while it's out. I mean, make it more, more of the uh, fuller experience in that sense. Yeah, I think so for sure, right? Like uh, my expectation is that, and you you were you were asking, I, I kind of uh, deviated away from your question, but you know, my expectation is yes, people will play the full campaign, and probably a, you know a couple of missions at a time is what I would guess. You know, when I'm when I pull out a game like you know a short little solitaire game like Maquis or something, I never play it one time, right? Like I'm right, always right. going to play it two, three times. And so my expectation is that people probably play at least a couple of missions. You know, you're going to, what's going to happen is you're going to play a mission and you're going to level up your guy. We, we should talk about the tech upgrades a little bit too, but you'll level up your guys and you'll advance your technology and you'll immediately going to want to play with your new toys. Right. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so on to the next mission. And then the next thing, you know, four hours have passed and you played the entire campaign. So. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> So let's go ahead and jump into the tech upgrades. So how what choices do you have when you level level up your characters? Yeah, so um so the way that works is, you know, it, the the operators are going to get a skill advancement if they do one of two things, either if they destroy uh, any ship at all, meaning they can destroy a merchant ship that's outside the inner harbor so it's an easy target. If they destroy that, they'll get a skill advancement or if they make it into the inner harbor. So each of those represents a a you know, a realistic challenge and so they can only advance one skill per mission, but they can do either of those to do it. Now, independent of that, uh, you'll get victory points for three things. Uh, scuttling your, your human torpedoes, uh, having your operators escape successfully, or then this is where almost all the points come from, actually just you know successfully targeting a ship. So you'll add up those victory points, and uh, you'll spend those on upgrades. So one of the upgrades you can get is the forward positioning, and I already described that before, right? Like that's where your where your actual operators are launching their attack from, and this is this is like straight out of a movie. Actually, there is a movie. It's called The Silent Enemy. It's 1958, and it's really all about this, which is actually a pretty good movie. Believe it or not, in Gibraltar Harbor, right? So you had at their peak, the Italians had occupied an old Italian ship that the Spanish had taken possession of at the beginning of World War II, and they were basing their operations out of that ship across from Gibraltar, right? So they would literally had taken the ship, they were operating covertly in Spain, essentially, 
uh, on this ship where they were launching their operations from. So you can you can in the game advance to that point where you have the secret ship and you're using it to operate out, which is pretty cool. You can improve your wetsuit. You can improve your breathing gear. You can improve the actual human torpedo itself, which is uh, hugely important. And then you can also improve your warhead to the point where um, at its peak, you can have two warheads on a single human torpedo, which means in one mission, you could potentially successfully attack up to six targets. And so all of those things uh, are separate upgrades, but some of them are dependent on others, right? So you, you might have to, for example, upgrade a warhead before you can upgrade a, the, the highest level of the human torpedo. Yeah, that makes sense. So the players can upgrade their own characters, but you also mentioned that the harbor will react to player success, so they upgrade as well. What are some of the upgrades the harbor can do? One thing, you, some basic stuff, right? Like, so just there's more searchlights, right? It's easier for them to, to detect the, the attackers. One of, they, they use what are called harbor, def, um, harbor defense motor launches, or would, those are essentially patrol craft, which are out there looking for submarines or, or these human torpedoes. Those patrol craft are your main opponent. So they're going to um, appear based on a combination of factors. Like, have you been detected by searchlights? Uh, are you in the inner or the outer harbor? Um, are you submerged? That's, that's probably the single most important you know, factor. So those patrol craft, once they, they appear, um, they are going to continue to follow you and attack you if they, if you're detected and otherwise they'll start sort of patrolling the waters with this movement uh, routine that they have. So that, that's a big part of the game. I mentioned before briefly that it's an anti-torpedo net. So essentially the entrances into the inner harbor have nets that are specifically designed to stop torpedoes. And so you'll have to overcome those. Uh, and then a couple of late game additions, and these are pretty significant. One is what's called the underwater dive team. So the British, once they discovered you know this this problem with the human torpedoes, they had their own sort of counter divers, and so these guys would go out and they'd be searching ships constantly for um, for mines, either where their their magnetic mines were attached or these warheads from the the uh, human torpedoes. So they'll go out and look for you. And then there's also, and this is probably the worst of all, uh, what's called the shore base mortar, which essentially would put on either either side of the entrance to the inner harbor these mortars, for for lack of a better term, that would dispense depth charges every five minutes. So you basically every five minutes you're getting mortars or depth charges shot at you. And once that started, it was really hard for the Italians to make it in because you'd, you'd have to get to the entrance, get through the net not be mortared to death and, and guys were killed by these these depth charges um so that those that's sort of the, the last bit of the of the obstacle that can be upgraded and then within that there's different different levels wow geez so joe did you get a chance to experience any of these upgrades no because we played the just the first uh run through uh, i don't think we saw any of those yeah, I think I think Joe, you you guys didn't see the underwater dive team or the shore base mortar. I think you probably ex you experienced some level of all of the others, right? But like for example, you had the weakest anti torpedo net, right? Easiest to overcome, that kind of stuff. We certainly made it through. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how well did you do in your game, Joe? I think we, uh, by David's wording, broke even. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it felt pretty good though. So it felt better than it sounds. It was, it was, you know, it was interesting because everybody has a sort of a, the same initial reaction, right? Like if you score six points in the game, it's a draw. It's considered a draw. And everybody immediately has this reaction where like, wait, if I just scuttle my SL, my, my human torpedoes, if I scuttle my human torpedoes and I escape without ever doing anything, I'm going to score six points. So why don't I just do that? And you laugh at them like, yeah, you can do that if you want. And it's a draw, right? And so then, you know, Joe and the other two players, over the course of the mission, uh, one player uh, was unable to really accomplish anything. He you know, had problems and he got caught by the, the patrol craft and was, was killed. Uh, another player successfully got to a, a ship, but didn't wasn't able to sink it. And then the, the last player actually successfully sunk a, a merchant ship. And when it does clear, they scored six points. Right. So that's like all of this happened, and they still got to got to a draw. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like one more point, and it would have been a win. But I thought it was very like indicative of. Uh, what you would expect with that technology in that time though you know it's like oh yeah we we did a little damage and some people died it's about right it's also <laughs> probably the most on on the average it's probably the most realistic result right because by the time it was all said and done towards the end they were pretty successful at targeting lightly defended merchant ships in the roadstead right out in the outer harbor that was that was relatively easy um, so, so going for those sorts of kills, you, if you wanted to do that over the course of the campaign, you could probably do that with, you know, relative success. It's when you want to go for the big, the big wins that it becomes much, much more difficult. Yeah. Speaking of the inner Harbor, there was an interesting mechanic there where, uh, you get into this Harbor and it's, uh, the, the bigger point values are there, but then you're also more constrained on your movement. And the the searching kind of changes because there's less places for the patrol ships to pop up. So it's this, oh, sweet. This is where the points are, but it's just more tension, more intense. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds awesome. No, there there is an interesting, I, I don't know if we want to go into it, but like some of the feedback that, uh, uh, that we had, uh, Matt, myself, and my son who played the game, you know, we're more like traditional gamers. We like tiny towns and where words and all these like kind of uh, more conventional games. So we sit down and play this war game, which has little cardboard chits. And our first reaction is like, Oh, they should be minis. They should definitely be miniatures and you should paint them. And they should be like, you know, three inches tall and all these kind of funny, like uh, thematic feedback type things. And David's reaction was like, Oh, the, the war gamers won't have any of that. You know, they'll, <laughs> they'll just write the game off if it looks cool. They want cardboard chits. That's an interesting observation, actually. I never really thought about that. And the difference between these two uh, communities and what they want in the game. No, I was going to say, in trying to straddle those two worlds. Like, you, like in the perfect world, you want a game that appeals to both. But that's almost right. impossible, right? Right. Um, I've I been... mean, I think, I think David's... I think this game in particular and some of David's other games do a really good job of balancing that. Again, like unbelievably detailed historical accuracy but still just a fun like there's some randomness in it there's some dice rolling uh there's a lot of theme coming through uh it's it's i think it's a very good balance so there's one game in particular when i bring up there's a perfect tie into that is undaunted that Mm -hmm. david you worked on 
because that was quite surprising on how much theme you packed into like a, a weird twist on deck building in that sense and how approachable that I felt that was for a, I'll call it, it's not really a war game, but a war themed game. If you know what I'm trying to get, get at yeah. or other players. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, that game is funny. That game has a long history, right? So uh, it's another game that I can trace back to my original early game playing days with, with Joe and our friend Matt, where they introduced me to a few acres of snow. And so I came out of that thinking, I like deck building. This is really cool. And I like these sort of waros, right? These war game Euro hybrids. And so what what could I do that would be a deck building driven game that plays out on a board? So that, that was kind of like the thought, right? Like that was that was where I wanted to go with it. And at the same time, I was really getting into tracking my grandfather's unit in World War II, the 30th Infantry Division. And so all this was happening at the same time I was moving to England and I was traveling to France and visiting Normandy. And, and so I was like, hey, I know I'll base this game on my grandfather's unit. And so it like it just kind of naturally evolved into what it is. But it certainly was a conscious decision to, to say, you know, I want to do a deck building game with a spatial element and I want it to be platoon level and very you know small scale. And I want it to as best as possible, take the deck building and model how you would do essentially the command and control, right? Like that's the most, the most important part of the, of the game, in my opinion, the command and control of a, like a platoon. Right. Right. Yeah. And so this game, just for listeners knowledge, it is a competitive game. One V one. But because we're a one-stop co-op shop here, I got asked the question, have you thought about ways or methods you can make that into a solo or maybe even a co-op game? So I will say, uh like on day zero the solitaire community hugely embraced undaunted so like tons and tons of variants have been made um almost all of those are what are what i call two-handed variants right if you know what i mean when i say that like you're playing both sides yourself uh competitively which and people, so this is what people don't get, and I, I totally understand this. Like people come, they look at me, and they're like, "Hey, you designed Undaunted. You also designed Pavlov's House and Castle Litter and Your Door by Stealth right. and Sea, etc. Like, why didn't you make an Undaunted solo variant?" And here's the thing: when I design a solo game, I des- or solitaire game, I design it as solitaire from the start. Right. Um, and it's hard for me to to make a solitaire variant of a competitive game um it's very very difficult because i don't want it to be a script i don't want to be super mechanical like i want it to feel like just like the two-player game does and it's that's a challenge that's something i struggle with big time so uh i all i can say is i definitely hear the people right because i mean i live i i spend more time probably on the solitaire wargamer facebook page than any other place on the internet right so (laughs) so i hear people um osprey hears people so i think that we will definitely try to do it like i I, there's nothing there's sort of no guarantee but i just definitely hear the interest for sure cool yeah it's curious i hearing the other designers we've interviewed too there's a, a pretty big difference between designing something for solo and competitive and making those balance nicely. So, yep, you definitely hear that from a lot of people. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, I, I, you know, and in the same respect, like when um, DVG asked me to make a competitive version of Pablo's house, I, it, it's been there, right? Like you could play it solitaire or co-op, and I actually prefer Pablo's house co-op over solitaire, personally. But um, the competitive variants, I, I, it's I, it's barely a variant. Like I'm not a huge fan of playing that. I play it that way to teach people, but it's not designed that way, and so I definitely embrace the. For me personally, when I'm designing a game, I, it's all I'm all in on the the original design concept or approach or whatever you want to call it. The the only thing I'll I'll mention, and this is like totally left field, but I think you can probably appreciate this. When I first started listening to your guys' podcast, it was because uh, I had started talking to the Sadler brothers, and so this is I don't know six months ago or something, maybe longer than that now. And they are fans of Undaunted. And so we, we're now working on a project. I can't really talk about it. But when I started working with them, I was like, oh, I need to go out and listen to all the stuff that the Sadler Brothers have been on and done and stuff. So I found your podcast. And I think it was probably UltraQuest when you guys were talking about UltraQuest. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, hopefully we'll have something that, because you guys can be pretty big fans of Brook City and UltraQuest and stuff. So hopefully in the future, uh, we can have something where, it's a collaborative project that I've done with with Trevor Benjamin, who's the co-designer for uh, Undaunted with the the Sadler brothers. Oh, cool. Love to hear it when you're able to talk about it. Yeah, it's exciting. Super fun. Okay, well, I want to thank you guys, David and Joe, for coming to the podcast. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for having, having yeah, us. Yeah, real blast. And I know uh, by the time this airs, uh, by Stealth and Sea campaign will probably have ended, but I assume there'll be some way people can pre-order our late backer. With is that correct? Yeah. Um, usually, DVG puts a backer kit. I think that's what it's like. That's how you back late, right? Do the backer kit. Right. Um, a couple of weeks afterwards. So by the time this is posted, almost certainly, if you go to the the uh, Kickstarter or just Google by Stealth and Sea, the backer kit should be up, and people can make their late pledges. So yeah, thanks again, guys. Really appreciate your time. It's a lot of fun talking about this. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks, listeners, for joining, and we'll see you at the next stop. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week with another top five list. The intellectual property theft in board games is real. Have to be so secret, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk about anything. I just don't know if I can. I have to ask them. Well, you, it'll be, yeah, and I guess on that note, do you want me to edit any of that out? Or are you okay with no, 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 no. That's all. That's all fine. That's all fine. Okay. We, okay. they, they, and I have all sort of made cryptic references to it on social media and stuff. So it's totally fine. Cool. The fact just that we're working sure. together is is fine. And if okay, something good. does get stolen, it'll just be what you had coming for stealing mechanics from <laughs> Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> <laughs>